I experienced a conversion about two years ago at this time. And it was greatly significant, but in order for you to understand the significance of it, I need to back the story up a little bit. Uh, my family has a history of involvement in dentistry. On my side of the family, my mom has been involved on both the clinical and administrative sides of a dental office on and off for most of her adult life. On my wife's side, her grandpa was a dentist for his entire career, many, many years. So on the one hand, it wasn't hugely surprising that my wife was interested in talking to these people about their profession. But on the other hand, it was extremely surprising that she would have an interest in cleaning plaque, scraping plaque out of bad breath-filled mouths. So much so that she became a dental hygienist herself, a very, very good one at that. Now, you can imagine the kind of pressure that a pop-drinking, non-flossing guy feels living under the ever-watchful eye of a dental hygienist as a wife. You know, like a doctor trying to convince a red meat eater of the fragile state of his heart, my wife would regularly sit me down to talk to me about the need to floss my teeth. As she went through school, she would rehearse her OHI, oral health instructions speech, on me. And I would listen, and I would nod, knowing that she was absolutely right about my need to floss, and then I would do nothing. And see, flossing just isn't for me. It was an extremely boring thing to do, and I have four wisdom teeth still in, which means that every time I floss, it takes me a good four to six seconds longer than other people. It just wasn't going to happen. And so went our marital tension about flossing until my conversion. And we started going to a new dentist. And this was not your fluffy, bunny, sweet dentist, the kind of guy who gently urges you to floss. He said two things to me. He said, do you floss? And I confidently said, no. And then he said, more confident than I, you're going to floss now. <laughs> and I said, yes. He commanded and I obeyed. I never flossed, but in the last two years, I have only missed a handful of days. Now, why on earth, other than to score points with professionals, dental health professionals like my wife and that dentist who goes to Christ Community Church, by the way, <laughs> why would I introduce a message on resentment by talking about the dentist? Well, for this reason. The only way that we're going to experience freedom from resentment, something that comes through reconciled relationships, is if, like my flossing conversion, we see the problem for what it really is, and then we respond obediently with necessary actions. Now, of course, when it comes to relationships, this is a much, much harder thing to do. And that's why many of us here today are in the bondage of bitterness. At Christ Community Church, we've been reflecting on joy this entire Christmas season, but we've been doing so by linking it with freedom. We experience joy when we're free from various joy killers like discontentment, guilt, self-absorption, busyness, and stinginess. When we express gratitude, confess sin, focus on other people, slow down and give generously, then we live freely and we live with joy. Today, our sixth and final killjoy or obstacle to true happiness is resentment. How do we experience freedom 
from resentment and thus experience joy? Now that's the question that we're going to be seeking to answer today as we begin to study Matthew chapter 5, which if you have your own Bible you can turn to, and if you want to take notes you can take the outline in your weekly welcome out. As we approach the study of Matthew 5, I want to make explicit two interesting assumptions that have been implicit throughout this entire series. Now, you know what they say about assuming things, right? When you assume something, you make, forgive my language, a donkey out of you and me. That's supposed to be funny. Three times I've done that, three services, nobody laughed. I just kept trying and trying. In this message, we have been making some assumptions. In this series, excuse me, we've been making some assumptions. We've assumed that you want to be free from the killjoy under consideration. We've assumed that you don't want to be discontented or guilty or self-absorbed or busy or stingy. And I suppose with some of those, that may be true. But when it comes to bitterness and resentment, I'm not so sure. In fact, I think that we like it too much to desire to be free from it. You know, at first, bitterness does hurt as we experience the loss of a relationship under strain. But over time, we eventually begin to draw power from our bitterness when we begin to crave someone's destruction. And if we get free of that, then we lose a form of comfort, a form of consolation. But I tell you the truth, when it comes to resentment, you got to want reconciliation more than you want to hang on to the bitterness of the poisoning effects of bitterness and resentment. So what we're going to study today will not matter at all if your heart disposition isn't open to change, if you really don't want this kind of freedom. The second assumption concerns freedom itself. You know, most of us operate with a very specific vision, a definition of freedom captured perfectly by the American ideal in Burger King, have it your way. If you think that freedom is a matter of doing what you want to, when you want to, then you're not going to experience the kind of joy that we've been talking about in this series because that kind of joy is only experienced in a life lived for others. A point made so well last week by Newt Larson. Freedom in God's way of operating is defined by the ability to be for others. I'm free to serve you. I'm free to act on your behalf rather than my own. I've had 17 months to reflect on this kind of freedom issue in the practical day in and day out of our lives as it's been completely upended by our daughter, Charlotte. Now, freedom used to be the ability to go do whatever we wanted, whenever we wanted to. We could just do whatever. We were free. We could sit at a restaurant for as long as we wanted to. We we were free to go on a date whenever we wanted to. We were free to go to bed and wake up whenever we wanted to. We were free until I really understood what freedom is about. Freedom is the ability to take care of Charlotte. Freedom is the ability to put our needs after her needs. We're free to be selfless. We're free to change an endless number of poopy diapers. That's actual freedom. We're really free to live even if our freedom, our sense of freedom, and even our whole life is completely redefined. I'm not free to do what I want, but I'm free to be about other people. 
So that's God's kind of freedom. And again, until our vision aligns with his, which is certainly the best thing for us, we're not going to be free. And we won't be free to experience joy or true happiness. So on the basis of those two assumptions, before we even jump into the text, I just want to provide you a moment of truth. Do you want to be free from bitterness if that's the kind of freedom that we're talking about? Is your heart actually open to hear and then to respond to what God wants to say? I really hope so. Because if so, then you'll be in a position to hear God's word and do something with it. So I want to read the entirety of our passage today, Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26, and I want you to follow along with me, and then we're going to get to work studying it. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court, and anyone who says, you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Now, these words are found not too far into Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And with respect to the context of that sermon, I just have one brief point, because it's especially relevant to the theme of joy. You see, the bookends of this sermon, the Beatitudes on the front end, Matthew chapter 5, and the story of the wise builder at the other end, Matthew chapter 7, set this entire sermon in the context of kingdom joy. The blessed person is a wise person, and the wise person is a blessed person. In biblical terms, blessing and wisdom are synonymous with joy, and that means that all of the teaching in between, including our passage, contributes to a life of kingdom joy. Obedience to Jesus' teaching produces true freedom and joy. So what's Jesus' teaching on resentment? Well, Jesus identifies two needs. If you're taking notes, you can jot the first one down here. First, we need a fresh perspective on resentment. Now, right from the outset, I want to share a key insight from these two verses about this fresh perspective. And I'm starting this way because I'm really excited to talk about this fresh perspective. I've studied this passage before. I've heard it taught a number of times. I've read through it a whole bunch more times than that. But this time, while studying it in preparation for this message, something kind of popped, a new way of looking at this, a fresh perspective. Normally when I structure a sermon, I want to develop it slowly, more like point by point, and let the, the idea sort of present itself as it comes. But in this case, Jesus' notion is radical enough to just put it on the table from the get-go. So here is the key insight from the first two verses of our passage. Our bitterness and resentment and anger, which are the results of broken relationships, are viewed as a normal part of life 
for most of us. Business as usual, status quo kind of stuff. But according to Jesus, harboring bitterness and fueling resentment is murder. Make sure to catch that. What we tolerate on a daily basis in a lot of our relationships, sometimes these things stringing along for years and years, is relational murder. What we brush off as insignificant, Jesus sees as greatly significant. Our bitterness and resentment and anger which are the results of broken relationships are a normal part of life to us, but according to Jesus, harboring bitterness and fueling resentment is no different than murder. Listen to his words. Verses 21 and 22, Jesus says, You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka is answerable to the court. Anyone who says, You fool, will be in the danger of the fire of hell. Now, there are a number of things that are worth pointing out in these verses, but I want to begin with Jesus interaction with the Old Testament in verse 21. Now, does this quotation, you shall not murder, sound familiar to you? I'm guessing that it does if you're acquainted with the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament recorded in both Exodus and Deuteronomy, then you'll recognize this as number six in the list. God spoke through Moses to the Israelites at Mount Sinai saying, you shall not murder, and then Jesus summarizes a variety of consequences found, out, found throughout the Old Testament in a variety of places by saying that anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Old Testament murder is equated with homicide in contemporary terms. In other words, it can be distinguished from manslaughter. Homicide is intentional, whereas manslaughter is unintentional. What God is prohibiting in commandment number six is outright intentional killing, taking someone's life from them. Now, interestingly, intentional sinning, like murdering somebody, is classified in the Old Testament as sinning with a high hand. It's a very meaningful picture because you can actually envision someone taking a rock in hand, someone taking a knife in hand, and lifting it over their head, fully contemplating the action that's going to happen. In the sight of God, they sin with a high hand. It's an intentional action. It's a flagrant abuse of human life. It's a severe act with a severe consequence, and it's the kind of thing that most people will not find themselves guilty of committing. Now, Jesus assumes that his audience is familiar with this entire context when he quotes this brief line from the Old Testament, and he's probably aware of the fact that most people in his audience, like most of us, would have gladly admitted that they hadn't sinned in this high-handed fashion. And it's that reality of familiarity that produces the bite of verse 22. Notice the contrast Jesus introduces with the words, but I tell you. He quotes God's word through Moses in the Old Testament, and then he says, but? Is Jesus about to challenge God's prior revelation in the Old Testament? Well, think of it this way. Imagine for a moment, and you'll really have to use your imagination for this, imagine for a moment that Pastor Jim regularly preached about reading your Bible and putting it into practice, or about sharing your faith, or about giving generously. Imagine that he would do that. Imagine he's done it for a long time, something like 30 years or something like that. 
Now imagine that some young upstart guest speaker shows up and he says, well, you've heard Pastor Jim say that you should read your Bible and you should put it into practice and you should give generously and you should share your faith. But I say to you, you'd be thinking, who the heck does this guy think he is before he even finished the sentence? You'd be looking around to see, is anybody else as shocked as I? Does he know who Pastor Jim is? Now imagine that he continued that statement saying, but I say to you, if you do any of these things from improper heart motivations, then you're not going to experience real joy. You'd think, well, there's a contrast there, Pastor Jim says, but I tell you, but you'd also recognize that Pastor Jim would be just as likely to say the other part too. There's a contrast, but there's not a contradiction. That's what's going on here in Matthew chapter 5. This is not a however. This is instead a furthermore. Jesus uses a contrast, but I tell you, not in order to contradict, but in order to draw out different implications from the implications his audience had drawn out. See, when they heard God's command, you shall not murder, they think they're in good shape because they haven't killed anyone. But when Jesus hears this same command from God, he recognizes a deeper significance, one that characterizes the normal lives of most of the people in his audience and most of us here today. See, Jesus says it's not enough to just not commit homicide. To be righteous as a follower of Jesus, we need to be attentive to the underlying murder motives, things like bitterness and resentment. And more than that, we need to recognize that embracing and practicing those things, bitterness and resentment, is actually the high-handed sin of murder in God's eyes. You see, our run-of-the-mill bitterness toward people is an egregious offense before God. And until we see this fresh perspective on it, we're not going to be likely to act. We're not going to take it seriously. Jesus sums all of this up with this word, anger which I was surprised to note is connected to all sorts of words in the New Testament about relational brokenness. Words like jealousy, envy, rivalry, selfishness, ambition, and our key words for today, bitterness and resentment. In fact, there's a great example in the New Testament of all of these words jumbled together in one sentence. When the Apostle Paul addresses relational tension in Ephesians, he says this, Ephesians 4, verse 31, "...get rid of all bitterness." Rage, anger, brawling, slander, along with every form of malice. All of these words are caught up together, related to one another. And this becomes very clear when Jesus fleshes out what it means to be angry in verse 22. In the last part of the verse, he picks two examples, both of them insults that result from anger and bitterness and resentment. Take, take a look at these lines. Jesus says, anyone who says to his brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. Anyone who says, you fool, is in danger of the fire of hell. Now, Jesus has picked two insults that we presume his audience was aware of. Maybe they were particularly vitriolic. Raka is an Aramaic word that, as best we can tell, means empty-headed. You fool is clear enough, but it's probably worth pointing out that the Old Testament context of foolishness is standing opposite to God. These are just basic, maybe run-of-the-mill insults. The specific meaning of the insults is less important than what Jesus is pointing out about them. 
It's important to recognize that Jesus is describing a vicious anger cycle in which insult follows insult, which follows insult, which follows insult, which follows insult, a vicious anger cycle. It's characteristic of a bitter feud, the kind of thing that you reimagine in your head over and over again. Anger fuels resentment, and resentment fuels bitterness, and bitterness fuels anger, and on and on and on it goes. My wife and I have recently gotten into watching some episodes of the TV show NCIS. That stands for Naval Criminal Investigation Service, because in each episode of the show, they look into some death of a member of the military. And on occasion, there's a show that demonstrates some real keen insight into the human condition, and I find those very, very interesting. In one particularly troubling episode, it tell, they tell the story of this young guy whose sister was killed. And this murderer is in the process of being investigated. He's going to court, but this brother has different intentions in mind. He doesn't want him to go through this system, the court, and the justice system. Instead, he wants to derail the hearings, screw up the investigation so that this guy's let off on parole. Because when he is, then this guy can deal with him himself. He'll go and actually kill him to take care of his sister's debt, so to speak. He's got vengeance just boiling up in him. He doesn't want to see this guy sit on death row waiting the death sentence, and maybe it will never happen, and so I want to get him myself. And so as the story unfolds, these guys find themselves in an alley. He succeeds in getting this investigation and the hearings derailed. The murderer is discharged on parole, and so after months and months of stewing on the poison of bitterness, he finally has the chance to see his sister's murderer face to face. He's going to deal with him. He confronts him at gunpoint, and the two begin this brief but moving dialogue. You know, looking at the eyes of this young kid, turned all inside out by his bitterness, the murderer says to him, man, it's just, it's not worth throwing your life away. And the brother quickly responds, shoving the gun closer to him. And what about my sister's life? You took her from me. And she was the only family that I had left. And then betraying this incredible insight into the nature of anger and resentment, the murderer responds by saying, I can't give you her life back, but maybe I can give you yours. I'd supply the bullets myself if I thought that killing me would make you feel better, but it won't. You don't know anything about me. The kid responds all angry, sticking the gun even closer to him. And then with hurt all over his face, the killer says, I've spent more time thinking about you than I have anything else in my entire life. I took your sister's life and I wasted mine. Are you really going to let me destroy yours as well? That's what bitterness and resentment do. They destroy lives. Jesus provides a fresh perspective on this very commonplace aspect of our relationships. He underscores the fact that harboring bitterness and fueling resentment is murder. And that if we don't take on his perspective and we don't act accordingly, then he says three times in these verses that we'll be subject to judgment. By way of application, I want to ask if after hearing these words from Jesus, if you've begun to see it this way. Resentment is no small thing in God's eyes. It's a high-handed sin. 
Now, I've discovered a litmus, litmus test for myself that helps me to determine and discern where bitterness is lurking in me. I'll often ask myself, if I was about out and about and I ran into that person, whoever it would be, what would happen to me? You know, would I be even capable of looking at that person? Could I have a conversation or would I immediately rehearse old conversations in my imagination? If my blood pressure starts rising or I wonder what I would say or I imagine myself just winning an argument, then I know that I'm not in a good place. Bitterness and resentment are ruling in my life. And Jesus says that I'm subject to judgment for murder. Are you bitter are you resentful? And if so, toward whom specifically? Jesus says that first we need a fresh perspective on resentment and bitterness. But then secondly, we need a quick response to resentment. A quick response to it. Matthew 5, 21 through 26 has a really clear structure to it. And it's worth paying attention to because often the structure of a passage will highlight what's most important within that passage. And in this case, we have what Bible scholars call a triadic structure. Now you can tell by the word tri in the front of the word triadic that we're dealing with something that's presented in threes. In fact, it's pretty clear that Jesus structures all of his instruction in verses 21 through 48 in these triads. Now, here's the only important thing you need to know about triads. The climactic part of the triad is the final part. So there are three parts of Jesus' instruction in these verses, and the most important piece is the third section. So we've already seen two of the parts in that last point. First, in verse 21, we notice the Old Testament quotation from the Ten Commandments. That verse introduces the material upon which Jesus comments. Then second, we just finished looking at verse 22, in which Jesus draws out the implications of the murder command. He offers a fresh perspective on our relationship stuck in bitterness. He describes these relationships in the terms of this vicious cycle of anger, something that's not easy to escape. And then the third section consists of verses 23 to 26, and it's here that we find the most important bits of Jesus' teaching, specifically... We see the way out of that vicious cycle of anger. Several years ago, uh, I was pretty big into kayaking. And I was so big into kayaking that I wanted not only just to be able to do it for recreation, but I wanted to be able to help other people that I saw struggling on the river. So I became a white water rescue swimmer. I got certified to do all this stuff. I would go out on the river, we would go kayaking, and we would occasionally find people who needed help and help them. One of the things that often happens, the dangerous things that happens while kayaking on a whitewater river, is that you can get stuck in what's called a hole. A hole is created when the water is bouncing off the riverbed, and it's bouncing off the rocks in a rough section of rapids. And it's this cyclical motion that can kind of suck you in. So when someone falls out of their kayak in one of these crazy rough sections, they can get pulled right into a hole. And so we were trained to, to teach people and to think about doing corkscrew maneuvers to break yourself out of the hold of the water's grasp. If you're in this cyclical motion, it's moving very quickly, and it could go on indefinitely, and you could drown. What you need to do is spin the opposite direction of the momentum. You move in a different direction, and it breaks you out of the hold of that water. You have to start momentum in a new direction in order to get out 
of that whole, a vicious cycle. Verses 23 to 26, the end of this triad, offer us a kind of corkscrew move so that we can get out of the vicious cycle of anger, bitterness, resentment. So follow along as I read these verses and see if you can identify what that corkscrew move is. As a conclusion of the triad, Jesus says, Therefore, on the basis of everything else that I've said, I'm going to flesh it now out in application. If you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. Do you see the corkscrew move in these verses? It consists of five imperative or command verbs. Take another look and notice the highlighted words in this section. In verse 24, Jesus says to leave, go, be reconciled, offer. And then in verse 25, he says to settle matters quickly. These five verbs come in quick succession in these verses. And they underscore the fact that Jesus expects his followers to quickly respond to bitterness and resentment in relationships. This is the exact opposite of our typical response to relational conflict. Our typical response to bitterness and resentment in relationships is to neglect bitterness and resentment in relationships. It's to neglect relational conflict altogether by not going to talk it through, by not going to have it reconciled. We just want to stay away from it. We'd rather quit the relationship, leave it over there, than go endure the agony of trying to bring healing. But Jesus says that we should have the exact opposite response. The only way to be free from resentment and bitterness is to respond quickly. But I want you to notice something very interesting about how he talks about all this. It's quite radical here in Jesus' words. And I want to try to get at this with a question. If you've got your own Bible, you can glance down and look at it. Who does Jesus envision going to offer terms of peace? Who does Jesus envision being the party responsible for reconciliation? Is it the bitter and resentful person? Or is it the other party? We'd probably think that it's the bitter or resentful person, but in both of the situations that Jesus describes, he calls on the non-bitter party to engage in the process of reconciliation. So for instance, take a look at the first example in verses 23 and 24. I want to put this in contemporary terms for us. You know, Jesus says that you're on your way to church. You're going to spend time in worship. And when you get there and you're preparing to worship God, you remember that someone has something against you. Jesus says that it's the responsibility of the, bitter, of the person who's engaging in worship who's responsible to go quickly respond to bring reconciliation to the someone else who's bitter, angry, or resentful. It's the same thing with the case going to court. The accuser is the angry, bitter, or resentful party, but Jesus says that it's the job of the person being taken to court to make things right. 
Jesus is teaching us to go out of our way to free other people from the burden of resentment and bitterness. Because he's already said in verse 22 that angry people will be subject to judgment. People who have bitterness and resentment towards you are the subject of God's judgment. And it's our responsibility to free them of it by seeking to be reconciled to them. Jesus is calling for interdependence among his followers, a kind of righteousness that would seek not only to manage my own bitterness and resentment, but also to seek to free other people from the bondage of bitterness. Now, I recognize full well that this, upon first hearing, might seem a little bit odd or a little difficult to grasp. In fact, slow as I am, I spent a very long time puzzling over this whole thing. And so let me try to clarify this with a pair of illustrations. I have a friend who called me several months back, and he said that he needed to talk with me about some things. He was hanging out with a mutual friend of ours, and in the course of their spending time together, my name had come up, and it became very clear to our mutual friend that this guy had a lot of issues with me. He was harboring a bunch of bitterness toward me. And so our mutual friend said, hey, you need to call him and get this sorted out. And so he did. He had the courage to do so. He called me, and he said, let's get a time together. I want to talk with you about some issues. I had no idea what he was talking about, so we got together. And he said, I have been feeling bitter toward you about a whole host of things, and I want to seek to clarify some things, to understand if you really meant, or when you said this, if you really meant that, or when you did this, if you meant to do that, or and so he started to walk through a number of scenarios that had taken place over six, eight, ten months. And he started to ask me questions. Is that what you meant? Is that why you did that? Is that why you forgot to follow through on this? Is this why this? And I was able to just walk through each of those and clarify each of those things for him. And within like 20, 25 minutes, what was initially a potentially hazardous situation became a very good one. It was mature and healthy and helpful and godly, and it was really good. And we spent the rest of the lunch then hanging out in the joy of cleared air between the two of us. Now let me say, if we approached most of our relationships like that guy did, the, the godliness, the maturity that led to that kind of interaction to go seek to understand if, in fact, these things were true, if we did that, our relationships would be a lot healthier. But think of this. Wouldn't it have been better if he didn't have to live with bitterness for six, eight, or ten months leading up to that conversation? How much better would it have been if I do what another friend of mine does? I've got a friend who at the end of every single week takes some time to review his life. Sets aside a small amount of time, he might journal something or whatever, but he does some reflection. He thinks about how he spent his time. Were those good uses of my time? How I spent my money? How I was dominated by this or that at work and were those the appropriate things and sin areas and the need to confess those things. And one of the areas that he spends time thinking about is relationships. And so he thinks through neighbors and friends and coworkers and family members and to, tries to determine if there are conversations that went sideways, if he possibly offended anybody. He thinks through all of those people and all of those conversations, and most often, chances are, he comes up with one or two or three or four or more people that he's offended in some way, intentionally, unintentionally. What conclusions did they draw? And then... He makes phone calls, sets up coffee appointments, lunch appointments to go have conversations with those people in order to clear the air, to ask the question, did I in some way, could I have, I might have, did I in fact, he seeks reconciliation because he understands it's his responsibility to make amends with people. 
Now, again, if either of these approaches were the ones that we used to deal with our relationships, we'd be in a much healthier spot. But I hope that you can see how the second one calls for a greater level of responsiveness, a more radical one on the part of the disciple of Jesus. Jesus envisions his disciples as self-aware, sensitive to his spirit, having the courage necessary to quickly respond, even aggressively to respond, in order to be free of the bondage of bitterness and resentment and to free other people of it as well. If you find yourself currently drinking from the bottle of bitterness and resentment, allowing the poison of it to twist you up inside, then I want to urge you to recognize the stakes and then respond quickly by seeking reconciliation. Imagine if instead of having all of the nervous, rage, angry feelings that you have when you think of the person with whom you're bitter, if instead, when you thought of that person, it was a reconciled relationship, there was actual joy. And if you don't have bitterness or resentment towards somebody, then seek the Lord to determine if you might have done something to offend someone else, if you could free someone else of their resentment toward you. Is there someone that you've offended, maybe even unintentionally, that you could release from the bondage of bitterness? Jesus highlights our need for a fresh perspective and a quick response to his teaching because he knows that we'll experience true joy and freedom in reconciled relationships, relationships marked by selflessness and reconciliation and peacemaking. Now, as I draw things to a close, I want to invite our worship bands at each campus to come and to prepare to lead us in worship. And as they do so, I want to tell you a brief story. This past summer, I had a fascinating conversation with one of our ministry partners from Sierra Leone, Shadanke Johnson. The two of us were talking about the countercultural aspects of the church's life, and reconciliation was one of the things that came up. And he has a really unique vantage point for thinking about this kind of thing, because he's got two guys in his church who, from one perspective, have no reason in the world to speak to one another. But from the perspective of the gospel, of forgiveness given in Christ, they have every reason to speak to one another. You see, in a recent engagement in, in, in a civil war, these two men were responsible for the deaths of people in each other's families. Now, this one guy could point at the other one and say, he killed my mother or my sister. And the other one could point and say, he killed my son he killed my wife. The two of them could point at each other knowing this full well. And the two of them worship together when Shadanke's church gathers on the weekend. They've experienced God's forgiveness through Christ and they've extended that to one another. And so even though the offense was awful and incredibly painful, the forgiveness and grace that they've able to extend each other is more incredible. I think that Jesus has those kinds of scenarios in mind when he's teaching this in Matthew chapter 5, but I think that Jesus is also equally concerned with the stuff that takes shape between those of us here today, the kinds of things that happened over the last several weeks during the holidays, things between husbands and wives, things between fathers and mothers and their children, between siblings, between coworkers, between friends, between neighbors. Jesus 
call is a radical one. It's a gracious call to radical obedience. And it's gracious because simple obedience, despite the enormous difficulty of following through, is the best thing for us. Now, what I appreciate about what Jesus says in this text is that he leaves no room for exceptions because he knows that we'll find excuses so that we don't have to take action. He knows that we'll say that our thing is too hard or that it hurts too much or that we're justified in our bitterness or in leaving that person in his or her bitterness. Our situation is too unique. It's way too difficult. And Jesus says there are no exceptions, no excuses. He also didn't walk through what the outcome will be, giving us some kind of certainty because he knows that we crave certainty before we take action. We think the situation is so impossible, nothing could ever be resolved, and Jesus says, maybe, but go and be reconciled. I recognize full well that there are millions of particulars in everybody's situations, everybody's areas of bitterness, those broken relationships, and you could come up with a million excuses for why not to do all of those things, but Jesus calls us to radical obedience no matter how difficult the conversation or how unlikely the outcome. Jesus' call is a radical call to reconciliation and peacemaking, something that can be only done as we receive forgiveness and grace from God. That's the theme of the song that we're about to sing as we conclude our time in worship. It's called Once Again, putting into focus the forgiveness and grace that we've experienced from God when He reconciled us to Himself through the cross when we reflect on the forgiveness that he's extended to us, we have the power and the freedom and the joy to extend that forgiveness to other people, to reconcile relationships. If you haven't experienced a reconciled relationship with God, then humbly ask him for forgiveness now and he will give it. He's gracious and kind. And as we sing this song, we're going to reflect on his goodness to us. And on those people we need to go be reconciled with. So we're going to spend some time in worship. We're going to spend some time giving as well of our tithes and offerings as a response to his grace in the gospel. And so I want to encourage you in just a few moments when the band says so, we're going to stand and we're going to worship together. I'm going to pray and ask God to prepare our hearts. Father, we give you thanks for your grace and mercy to us. We give you thanks for the forgiveness that's been offered to us in Christ and the power that that gives us to forgive other people. We want to be marked by a quickness of response, a fresh perspective, recognizing what this is and why we need to take care of it. Father, please enable us to do that even as we reflect on your gift of grace in Christ as we sing once again the truth of the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.